of what our Savior has done. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. You may be seated. I want to say good morning to all of you and especially to our visitors. I'm so glad you're with us this morning. And I'm so glad that you've chosen to take time to, to be with us. That, that means a lot. There is no more significant event in all of mankind's history than the circumstances and the result of the week that we refer to as the Passion Week. There is no more significant event. And I am so excited. I, I think about this. What an, what an honor it is that I get to stand in front of a group of people every Easter Sunday and talk about the best thing that's ever happened to me and the best thing that's ever happened in the world. To be clear, all of history and every person who has ever and will ever walk on this earth, will ever draw breath from its atmosphere, is profoundly affected by the events of the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. No event in history rivals this event. Not World War I, not World War II, not the Industrial Revolution, the atomic bombings of Japan, 9-11. Nothing comes close to what we're going to talk about this morning. Because here's the thing, for every single one of us in this room, and I want you to catch this right at the beginning. I want, you to, I want you to feel the full weight of this this morning. How you view the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, how every person who has ever lived views that one singular event is the most important thing you will ever contemplate in your life. It is the most important thing that you will ever be confronted with in your life, that Jesus Christ died, he was buried, and he rose again, and what are you going to do with that? It determines how you think. It determines how you act. It determines how you make choices. And it certainly determines how you live. It determines what you value and treasure. And most importantly, it determines how you view and how you prepare for eternity. Now, I'll be the first to tell you that there are some who are skeptical about the whole account. We weren't there as witnesses, but, but in the Word of God, we have four clear testimonies to exactly what happened in the four Gospels. All four Gospel writers give us firsthand accounts of what took place. On top of that, we have the recorded testimony in the book of Acts and moving forward in the Bible of those first converts, the first believers, if you will, to Christianity, how they lived, how they believed in the resurrection of Christ to the point that it cost them their very lives. But it seems, though, that as historically we have gotten farther away from Christ's death and resurrection, the dimmer the world's view of it is. Would you agree with me on that? But it also occurs to me, too, that for many of us who have come to the cross, who, who have clung to the feet of Jesus at the cross, the farther we get away from that event in our lives as our lives go forward, the dimmer our view gets of it as well. 
Yeah, we celebrate Easter. We put on really good clothes. Don't I look really good in a suit? I hate a suit. <sighs> Just going to be honest with you. Someone cracked on me this morning. What are you wearing this suit for? And I was thinking to myself, really, what am I wearing it for? <laughs> we celebrate Easter, but are we really changed by it? Are we truly changed by it? And are we truly changed by the one who is the central figure of it? Do we really see Jesus Christ as the worthy one? Now, we would all, we just got done singing great songs that confess his worthiness, right? And so we're like, oh yeah, he's worthy. But tomorrow morning is a different story, isn't it? And by the time we get to Saturday of next week, it's a completely different story, isn't it? Do we truly see him as worthy? So this morning, I want to focus on the account of the resurrection, but I want to do it from a different perspective. I don't want us to go from the year 2023 and look back to AD 30 to those events. I want us to look forward into eternity as to how the resurrection is going to be viewed because I will submit to you that the resurrection is the single most important event here on this earth and it's the single most important event that we will celebrate if we are there with Christ in eternity for all of eternity. And so it's a really important event. And so I've had you turn to Revelation chapter 5 this morning. And while you're turning there, I want to set if you will, the backstory. I want to give you, we're going to jump in at chapter 5, and there's so much that we don't have time to cover in the first four chapters that we need to know to understand chapter 5. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1 says this, that this book is the revelation. In other words, it's, it's the revealing of who Jesus Christ is. And so this book, from, very, from the very beginning, the whole point of the book is to reveal who Christ is and what he's going to do in the future. He's the central figure. And in chapters 2 and 3, Jesus gives John seven messages, seven letters to deliver to seven different churches that literally were on the earth at that time. And, and so John writes down these letters. And then if you just go back one chapter to chapter 4, now the scene shifts. We're not thinking earthly anymore for a while. We're going to think heavenly here. It says in verse 1, and I, as, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Just imagine being John for a second and getting an invitation to go into heaven. I would be immediately like, I need a suit. I'm not dressed for it. <laughs> right? And so John is invited into the court of heaven. And chapter 4 describes what the throne room of heaven is like. And, and just, a little, just a little sidelight here. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're going to get to see those same things in chapter 4. Isn't that an awesome thought? And what seems so confusing in chapter 4, four creatures, you know, that, that, like, that look like a lion and an ox and a face of a man and a fly, an eagle in flight. What seems so confusing, we're going to all get to see that and understand what that's all about. I can't wait. But also in chapter 4, we have this description of 24 elders, and they're, they're, they symbolize a group of people. They symbolize Christ's church. And these 24 elders symbolizing the church, are all there before the throne of God. They're all directed to the throne of God because after all, if you're in the presence of God, where do you fix your attention, person? On God himself, right? 
And they're there bowing down before God. They're, they're taking crowns off of their head and they're casting them at, at God's feet. And there they are, worshiping. And they're singing in verse 11, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And so it's against that backdrop that we come to chapter 5. And I want to read all of chapter 5 this morning. It's too good not to read the whole thing. And, and so picture in your mind, there's, there's, a, there's this large group of believers all around, 360 degrees, all around the throne of God. God is sitting there on this throne. There is this bright green rainbow that emanates from the throne, John tells us in, in Revelation chapter 4. And there, there are these created beings, these, these cherubim and seraphim that are directing the worship to the throne of God. All this is happening. And then John now records next what else happens in chapter 5 verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look in it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. That's an amazing text of scripture, is it not? And I want, to, I want to tie it in. I want you to understand its significance on Resurrection Sunday morning, this morning. It begins with a search for a worthy one. We see that in verses 1 through 4. And it begins with a search for one who is worthy. As John is looking, as he sees this play out in front of him, not only does he see God sitting on the throne, and, and, and what the idea that you get here is, is he is so entranced with this vision of God that he doesn't notice that God's holding something. 
And I think that's only fair. If you and I had a vision of who God was and saw him, we probably wouldn't be paying attention to what's in his hand. But now that he's been there a while, he sees it in his hand, he holds a scroll. What is this scroll? What, what, what is the significance of this? I think it helps us to understand the, the, rest of the, the rest of this passage. We need to know what this scroll is. He records that it's written on both sides. It's written on, on, the, on within and on the back, and it's sealed with seven seals. Now, that's not something common to you and I, but actually it was pretty common during this time when John wrote this. Because under, under the Roman Empire, whenever somebody entered into a contract or signed a deed or a will or something like that, it was recorded on a scroll. There were no books then. There were just scrolls. And so legal documents were recorded on scrolls, and the details would be written on the inside, but the summary of that scroll would be written on the outside. That was their filing system. Think of it this way. You have a bunch of scrolls that record contracts and things like that, and, and they're being stored. How do you know what's in each one? You don't want to go to the trouble of opening up each one, right? So you write a summary on the outside, and that's exactly what we have here. It's sealed with seven seals. Roman law required that it be sealed with three. And for every extra seal, it indicated the importance of the scroll. This is a pretty important scroll that's in the hand of God. And it's sealed with seven seals. And on the outside, there's a brief description. And maybe John can see that brief description. And it's no wonder that he's weeping when no one comes forward to open the scroll. So there's a challenge that is issued in heaven. Verse 2, this mighty angel proclaims with all his might, who is worthy to come and open this scroll? This isn't just any scroll. This isn't like a three-seal scroll. This is a seven-seal scroll. And only one person can open this scroll. You say, Pastor Dan, what do you think that scroll is? Well, I believe it to be the title deed for this earth. It, it, is, it is the deed of ownership for this earth. And so God has it in his hand, and he's ready to hand it off to somebody, but there's only one who's worthy to take that and to open it. And what we find out in verse 3 is that no one that's in heaven, no one that's on earth, no one that's under the earth, there's not one person, there's not one angelic being, there's nothing that God has made, there's not even a fallen angel, not even Satan himself is powerful enough to step forward and open that scroll. You're not worthy of opening it, and I'm not worthy of opening it. No one can answer this challenge. And so verse 4, as I mentioned, you have John weeping. Imagine being so close. <laughs> you've seen God. You've, you've seen him in his perfection and his excellence. And now you want to see what he's got written in that deed. Being so close to having it opened and finding out. And in your mind, no one can open it. You would be weeping too, wouldn't you? It's a sad tale. And as John is standing there in this sea of believers and he's watching this play out, he is He's weeping loudly in verse 4. 
which leads me to my second point this morning. There, there's going to be a selection of a worthy one. There's been a search for a worthy one, and now there's a selection of a worthy one. Before John totally melts into despair, someone informs him that there is someone who can open this scroll. There is someone who can do this. There is someone who can, who can take on this challenge, who can open this scroll. And the description of this worthy one is something that I want you to pay close attention to this morning. The description of this one. Look with me at verse 5. One of the elders, one of the people standing there in front of the throne says, weep no more. Behold. In other words, hey, stop looking at your shoes and feeling sorry for yourself and crying. Get your eyes up. Look. Look, there's someone here who's going to step forward and do this. Who is this person? Well, he's described first as the lion of the tribe of Judah. The lion of the tribe of Judah. This goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 49 and verses 8 through 10 where Jacob is blessing his sons just before he dies. Judah is his fourthborn son and he says this about him. From you will come a fierce lion. From you will come a first lion, and, and all of your brothers are going to serve you. In other words, you're going to be the primary son now. You're the most important one. It's not the firstborn. It's going to be you, Jude. All your brothers are going to serve you, and from you is going to come this fierce lion who is going to roar and going to prey on his enemies. And for decades and centuries and millennia, the people of Israel have been waiting for their lion. They've been waiting for their Messiah to come. Keep going. Not only is he the lion of the tribe of Judah, he's also the root of David. He's the conquering root of David. Do you see that? He's the root of David that has conquered. This comes from Isaiah chapter 11, where Isaiah the prophet prophesied this, that someone coming from David's line, someone who would come from the royal line of David, would be the root of Jesse, who is David's father. He would be the one who would bring peace on earth. Now, just think of the two descriptors that we have so far. We have someone who's going to come and who's going to be like a lion, who's going to be powerful, who's going to destroy, but he's also going to bring peace. Do you know too many people who can do both those things? I know people who are really good at destroying, and I know some people who are fairly good at bringing peace. But this person is both. He's a conqueror. He's a victor. And because he's won whatever it is that he's won, he is demonstrated as the one who is worthy of opening this scroll. And so as we read that, we're like, man, this must be some amazing person. And it says that he can open the scroll and all of its seven seals. He has the authority to do so. Now put yourself with me at the throne of God in heaven and you're standing in this sea of people before the throne and this person next to you is telling you all this information like he's telling John and out from the middle of the group of this people one comes forward that's what we see in verse 6 and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders standing right with them I love how this person is pictured he's standing with you and I, he's standing with the church. 
He's among the elders. I saw a lamb standing. Now, wait a minute. Back up. One of these things is not like the other one. One of these things is not like the other one, right? We've got a lion. We've got this royal king. We've got this conqueror. And if I'm John, as I'm hearing this, I am looking for one really powerful dude, aren't you? And what comes forward? A lamb. It's really interesting, the word for lamb here is the same word that's used in the Old Testament about the Passover lambs. And, and the Passover lambs were, were, were special lambs. They were, they were pure lambs. They were, they were spotless lambs. But they were also very close to the family members. In fact, before they were shed, the lamb was literally brought into the house with the family. Some of you with young children in your home, can you only imagine what Passover was like every year? You have the lamb coming in, all the kids petting and playing with the lamb, and you know what you've got to do with the lamb, right? Every year, I'm guessing dads during the time of Passover were dreading that. But that's how this lamb is pictured. That's the word that's used, this lovable little creature. But this isn't just any lamb. This lamb is standing as though it had been slain. This lamb has all the markings of a lamb that's already been killed, but it's very much alive. It is very much alive as it's standing there. This is like no other lamb that, that you and I have ever seen. He had the mortal wounds all over his body. And, and, and make no mistake, when you add up the names in verse 5 and you put it with the lamb in verse 6, this can only be one person in all of history. This is Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. He is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And one day this world will feel his pounce and its roar. He is the root of Jesse. He is the one that has been promised from the beginning to take over the royal line of David and will sit on the throne of his father David one day on this earth. He is the conqueror. We sang about it this morning. He conquered over sin, over death, over hell. And he's also the lamb who was slain. And notice, he's described seven horns that's an indication of his power horns were an indication of power and seven being the number of completion he has complete power he has seven eyes of the, which are the seven spirits of god sent out into all the earth which which indicates so many things that we don't have time to unpack this morning but the fact that that it goes everywhere in the earth indicates that he is omnipresent he's omni he's he's omnipotent he's all-powerful he's he knows everything this is god in the flesh the picture here is you have God in spirit form sitting on his throne and you have God in the flesh right before him now at the throne. And what does he do? He walks forward and he takes the scroll. Now remember, John's concern was someone had to be worthy to take the scroll, right? Someone has to be worthy to take the scroll. 
And I want to submit to you that the events of the Sunday morning, centuries before that first resurrection Sunday morning, the events of that morning make him and him alone the worthy one to take the title deed to this earth and open it up. He rose from the dead, and in doing so, he won a battle that no one in this room, no one in all of mankind could ever win. He defeated sin and death because you and I couldn't, and we never will. I think it's fair to say that some 2,000 years ago, on the first resurrection Sunday morning, that is the date of the greatest victory that has ever been won in all of history. And so this worthy one steps forward. So we've had a search for the worthy one. We have the selection of it. And the rest of the chapter records for us the song for this worthy one. The song for this worthy one. Notice, as soon as he takes the scroll, it's not like there's a choir director up there or anything like this, but what happens is immediately, verse 8, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, that's, that if you're in Christ, that's you. This is, this is the Bible telling you what you're going to be doing, okay? As soon as he takes the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before, because after all, when you realize you're in the presence of the truly worthy one, what do you do? You let him know that he's worthy, right? Each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and they sang a new song. They sang a new song. Actually, this is one of the most unique songs. This song has three parts, and every time it gets to a new part of the song, more people join in in the singing. Do you see it here? They say, it begins with the, with the four creatures in, in, the, in the, the church of Jesus Christ in verse 9. They sing this new song as they're bowing before him. They're holding the prayers of the saints. They're holding harps. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. And this is what makes them unique to be able to sing this song. Notice the words of what they sing. You were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priest to God, and they shall reign here on the earth. Only the, only the church of Jesus Christ, only those who have, who have gone there because Christ has prepared a place for them, they are the only ones who can sing, you have redeemed, because they know it in their hearts. Do you know that in your heart this morning? And so as they bow before him, they literally are singing about themselves. We're here, not because we deserve to be here. We're here because you purchased our ticket in. You ever go somewhere where you couldn't afford it and somebody bought your ticket? Isn't that the best thing in the world? Yeah. But notice John records for us this part of the song and, and, and if you're in Christ this morning, if you can sing with all your heart the songs that we've sung and you could sing this song that he is worthy and, and that you're a ransom people, notice what that says about you. First of all, he's made us into a kingdom. 
He's made us into a kingdom. You see, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it doesn't just change our eternity. It gives us identity right here and right now. When you travel overseas, people tell me this, and I think I've been a part of this. I've been in Haiti, and I've been in Africa. I've been in Canada. People, people in other parts of the world can recognize Americans right away. They're the obnoxious idiots. I've been told that. That's our identity in the world. That's not a great identity. That's what we're known for. Guess what? I don't need that identity anymore. I've got a far greater identity. I'm a part of the kingdom of God. That is your identity, person, this morning. I, I don't care the issues that you struggle with. I don't care the fears that you have. I don't care the worries that you got. I do care about them. But in light of this, your identity is, is that you are a part of the kingdom of God if you are in Jesus Christ. Not only that, because of that, you've been given something that's amazing. You're a part of a kingdom and you've been made a priest. Now, don't think priests like wave the little incense thing, genuflect. Don't think priest that way. Think something much better. Think of a priest that as you, as an individual in Jesus Christ, you can go to the throne of God anytime. You see, under the Old Testament... Under the Old Testament, Israel couldn't just go to God, could they? They had to go through the priest. It's kind of highly inconvenient because every once in a while you just need to talk to God, don't you? You had to go through a priest. You and I don't have to do that. If we're in Christ, this is what's happened to us. We've been made a part of his kingdom and we've been made priests, which means any time I need to go, I just go. I just go. That's what the resurrection does. It gives us identity and it gives us permission. It gives us, it gives us full access. But that's only the first part of the song. Verse 11, get, John, John's supposed to be singing, but he's looking around. He's one of those people in church. Right? He's one of those people. He, look, verse 11, then I looked. Like, okay, this singing is so great. You ever get so caught up in the singing, you just look around the rooms like, man, this is awesome. So I looked and I heard around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, but it's not just them. Now it's the angels. And it's not just a few angels. It's myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands with a loud voice. You think the speaker's loud in here this morning? Can you imagine what that's going to be like? saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Now, understand this from the angel's perspective. The angels are finally getting it. They're finally understanding what's going on here because now it, it makes sense to them. They see all the players here. They see God on his throne. They see Jesus Christ, the lamb who had been slain, and they see the church that Jesus died for and ransomed there. And when they see it all together, it's like a big light bulb goes off in the angel's head, and they're like, yes, you are worthy, God. This is an amazing plan that you have done here. And it doesn't stop there. There's a third part to this song. You see it there in verse 13? And I heard every 
creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them. And you're like, there's, there's no way that that can be true. Well, remember the psalmist said, let everything that has breath do what? Praise the Lord. This is going to happen. All creatures are saying this, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. I can't wait to hear donkeys say that. Can you imagine what that's going to be like? Yeehaw. I can't wait to hear hummingbirds proclaim the greatness of God. It's going to happen. You're like, Pastor Dan has lost his marbles. And at the end of this, the four living creatures, they say this, let it be so. Let it be so, amen, that's what that means. And then it's falling down in worship. So you have the search for a worthy one, you have the selection, you have the song. But I would be remiss if I didn't take a few minutes and talk about the significance of this worthy one. Let me take a couple minutes to talk to you about the significance of this worthy one. Because whether or not you confess it, whether or not you believe it, whether or not you agree to it, there is one who is worthy of all of the world's worship, and his name is Jesus Christ. Whether or not you respond to that doesn't determine whether or not he's worthy. Think about all the things that we count worthy in this world. What makes them worthy? Because people want them. Like, people will spend all kinds of money for old trading cards that when I was a kid, I took out of the gum wrapper, I wanted the gum, I couldn't care about the cards, throw them away. Especially if they weren't Cleveland Browns players, throw them away. The Browns players made it up on my wall until they got traded and I threw them away. They're stupid pieces of cardboard. That's what made them worthy. It's because of what I saw in them. It doesn't matter what you think about Jesus Christ. He's not worried about you determining whether or not he's worthy. He is worthy. And here's the thing. How you respond to that is of paramount importance for you. I began by saying this, and I, I fully believe this. It's the most important crisis that you have ever faced. Who is Jesus Christ, and how do I respond to that? That is the most important crisis you have ever faced. Not your health crisis, not your job crisis, not your financial crisis, not the mortgage crisis, not what's happening with Intel. The most important crisis you face is who is Jesus Christ, and what are you going to do with that? In 1991, there was a bargain hunter named Terry Horton who was in a San Bernardino thrift store. Just doing her thing, right? Looking for deals, right? She bought this canvas. It was a, in her mind, she thought it was really ugly. It was just full of paint splatters and drips. But the price was right, as any bargain hunter in this room knows, right? The price was right, and she thought her friend might like it, right? So she buys this terribly awful paint drip painting for five bucks. She takes it to her friend's house. 
Her friend takes one look at it, and, and she's like, this is the most awful thing I have ever seen, but I'll see if it'll fit on any of my walls. So she takes it inside. She lived in a house trailer in San Bernardino. She takes it in there and realizes it doesn't fit on any of her walls, and she's like, take it out of here. Terry takes it to her house and does what all good bargain hunters do. They try to resell the junk that they bought in her garage sale. Some of you are like, you're getting close to home here, PD. She can't get rid of the thing in a garage sale until an art teacher shows up at her garage sale. He's a teacher. He's poor, right? Okay? He's going to garage sales. He shows up and he says, that might be a Jackson Pollock. And she's like, a what? Like, who's that idiot? Turns out it was a Jackson Pollock. And it was worth $50 million. $50 million. She bought it for five and didn't think it was of any value. Some of you are like, you know what? We're skipping Easter dinner. We're going to the Goodwill. <laughs> I tell you that story to tell you this. Terry Horton didn't understand what she had. And maybe you're here this morning and you don't understand what is being offered to you. Philippians 2 says this, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess him as Lord, as sovereign, as the one to whom, as his creation, you have to give an account. When the Bible says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, does it really mean every church? Does that mean you? It does. What we just saw in Revelation chapter 5 is a partial fulfillment of that. It's the church of Christ bowing before him and confessing him as Lord joyfully. You caught the joy, didn't you? They're celebrating his lordship. But that's not every human being, is it? That's not every human being. You've got to go further in the book of Revelation and you come to chapter 20 and what you will find out is in chapter 20, those who have not voluntarily confessed Christ as Lord, one day will be brought before him and they will be brought before him where he not only will be the final judge, but he will also be the executioner. And it's at that point in Revelation 20 that they will have to bow before him and confess him as Lord, but it's not going to be a joyful experience. You see, he is the lamb who will ransom his people, but he is also the lion who will judge and will vanquish all of those who do not acknowledge his lordship. If you're here this morning and you say this is just a myth or that's a really good feel-good story for Easter and I'll be back on Christmas, I got news for you. One day you will have to confess him as Lord. Because here's the thing, he's truly worthy. He truly is worthy. I'm not worthy. You're not worthy. Jesus the Christ is worthy. He's worthy of confessing as Lord and Savior. He's worthy of our obedience. He's worthy of our best, even putting a suit on on Easter Sunday. He's worthy of our love. He's worthy of our devotion. He's worthy of our praise. He's worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our complete confidence. And he's worthy of so much more. 
If you haven't confessed him as worthy, would you please do so today? I beg of you, would you claim him as your Lord? Would you willingly bow so that you can be with me and many in this room at that joyful confession that we're going to be at in Revelation chapter 5? I can't wait. Would you join me in prayer? While your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, I just want to say this to you. If you've not confessed Jesus as your Lord, I, I would love, I don't care how many people have hands I have to shake hands after the church service, I would love if you would just interrupt me and say, I, I want to know how I confess, can confess Jesus as my Lord. I would love to talk with you. One of the other elders, the guys who are up here on the platform, they would love to, to, to do that as well. Father, as we consider Resurrection Sunday, we thank you for your great plan. And Jesus, we say to you, you are worthy to take the scroll. You're worthy to open it. We praise you that you were slain, and we praise you that many of us in this room can say, it was by your blood that you ransomed us. And people from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made us a kingdom and priest to our God, and one day we look forward to reigning on this earth. We do say, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, we say blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever be yours. Amen.